Some ACDC in your early morning. Yeah. Brought right. you out of bed because you weren't up till 1 o'clock watching the Jets game last night. Is that what time it went until? I think about 12.30. Well, yeah, I guess it started at, what, 9.30? 9.30, and it went to overtime. The Jets winning in overtime for the first time this season. They got their first shootout win on Saturday against Calgary, and then they blew a 3 nothing lead last night to the San Jose Sharks, and you thought, oh boy, the guys from San Jose are going to get the last laugh with this whole back and forth between Winnipeg and San Jose, but no, the Jets found a way to go ahead 4-3. Joel Armia scored his second goal early in the third period. San Jose managed to tie, but then Brian Little got a goal 18 seconds into the overtime to match his jersey number and the Winnipeg Jets are once again in first place in the Central Division, and San Jose can bite it. Did you stay up and watch this game? <laughs> That's no. a lot of detail. No, I didn't, but I was awake for the third period. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah I couldn't help myself. And, of course, our buddy Scott Mortland, who lives in San Diego, mm-hmm. in San Jose last night, wearing his Jets jersey. Really? Loud and proud. So <laughs> I was getting the pictures and the text message updates from him, and it's tough to sleep through those, so. I was uh, awake off and on last night, and uh, the Jets back in first place. Nashville was tied with them for a little bit last night, but the Jets uh, reclaimed first place last night. Big win for the boys. And indeed, there's uh, something that you have found here. Dear Winnipeg, a love letter from San Jose. Yes. And this is written by somebody named Paul Gackle. Who's actually a former pegger. Oh, okay. Bay Area News Group is the, uh, it's from the mercurynews.com. And I'll just read a little bit here. My four-day break from Sharks hockey this month was rudely interrupted when my mother in Winnipeg called to ask, why are those guys trashing our city? She must have her facts wrong, I thought. Whenever I discussed my hometown with Sharks players, they told me how glad they were that the NHL returned to Winnipeg in 2011. It's a great hockey town, they told me. Winnipeg deserves a team. I jumped on my laptop and quickly learned that a video had surfaced where a few sharks were shown describing Winnipeg as the worst NHL city. It's cold, they said. True. It's dark. Not true. Winnipeg is the second sunniest city in Canada. And yada, yada, yada. Goes on from there. Don't want to read you the whole thing. But the headline, Dear Winnipeg, a love letter from San Jose. And uh, we're hoping to maybe speak with him a little bit later this morning. Yeah, the time zones may be our enemy here, but Paul Gackle, a proud Winnipegger living and working in California in San Jose, uh, penned this love letter uh, from San Jose to Winnipeg, and uh, this guy should be writing articles for the Chamber of Commerce and or Tourism Winnipeg <laughs> because he captures the essence of Winnipeg quite succinctly and very proudly. And I've mentioned this a lot, uh, lots of times, that when I lived away from Winnipeg, mm-hmm. uh, most people said, well, if Winnipeg's such a great place, why don't you move back there? I don't think Paul Gackle's moving back to Winnipeg anytime soon, but he's certainly proud to be from here, and I hope we can catch up to him later on this morning. You may have heard of by now this Domino's Pizza stuff. Here's Global's John Waugh in BC with the details. Harry Setti has seen a lot of odd things in elevators. From people flashing guns to others getting it on. People having sex in elevators, that's very common, these kind of things. But funny things, but this is this is this is definitely different. When his cameras captured this in a Surrey elevator over the weekend, the 20-year security veteran couldn't believe his eyes. As soon as he entered the elevator, he just put the pizza box down on the floor, 
and he started munching on our toppings. That's right. Between the first and 27th floor, this Domino's pizza delivery person decided he needed a snack. Oh, geez, what's he going to do to this pizza? What happened to the toppings, jaw dropping for many? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wow. That's terrible. SETI later told the apartment resident who placed the order, Global News notified Domino's Pizza corporate office. We're just totally embarrassed and frustrated to learn of this situation. I mean, we apologize profusely to the customer and, and, and to all of our customers. The Domino's delivery person identified and fired for his actions. This is a college student. I mean, a young person who just made a very, very wrong decision, and now he's going to pay for it. Fraser Health has yet to receive a complaint, but says it can deal with what happens outside the kitchen. If uh, individuals have concerns about uh, food that's being delivered or how it's being handled when it's being transported, those types of uh, concerns can also be brought to our health protection offices. As for the customer who got the partially eaten order, the pizza giant vows to make it right. I'd be pretty disappointed. I know we're not to go anymore, you know. But like a set of dominoes, the trust of customers already beginning to fall. Thank you very much, John Waugh, Global News, BC. Hmm. And, um, you know, I heard about this story, but until you actually see the video, it doesn't quite, the dots don't fully connect until you see him just munching away on these toppings. It's just such a... The, it's appalling, and at, at the same time, you kind of feel for him because maybe he's a, he's a, as the the corporate head. You work there. at a restaurant; food is easily available. I'm sorry for well, sure. Hang on, for sure hang you on, get a Greg. discount. He's a, he's a delivery driver. I know, and he's on the job. And let me just finish my thought, please. He was the the corporate honcho was saying he made a mistake. Yes, and he was he thought he could get away with nibbling on a couple of <laughs> toppings. He might be starving. I don't know. He just made a mistake, and now he's national news, and I'm sure he's going to pay for that for the rest of his life. I like your around. I like your compassion that you're exhibiting here right now. But you've worked in restaurants, you know that there are discounts available and the whole idea that this guy's a starving student is a little bit of a stretch for me but I'll give it to you I get you know I I pick on my plate on the you know if I go to a buffet and I'm on my way back to the table I, I get that if I pick up the pizza I might even pick up a slice and pull a slice out of the box on the way home but I do have an alternate theory I think this guy's actually um uh, uh, resurrected from the 1980s. Uh oh. This is the Noid. He loves to warm your pizza. If you've ever gotten cold pizza, a squash pizza, or pizza that just wasn't right, the Noid did it. I think it's the Noid. The Noid is back, Brett, alive and living in Vancouver, disguised as a university student. You can do all this stuff with CGI. Now that maybe he's just a cartoon character who's come to life. That's my theory. I thought Adam West killed him on Family Guy. <laughs> I saw that video, too. If you see the Noid running around, tell him if he ruins my pizza's freshness, I'll snap his neck. Perhaps it was the Noid who should have avoided me. Good job digging out the Noid, though. When you said, do you know who the Noid is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So thank you for that blast I, from the past. I think he's responsible <clears throat> entirely for this. 
Uh, Shannon Levadell, Kelly Moore, uh, Jeff Braun, here he comes, sauntering in just a tiny bit late, 6.50 on this Wednesday morning. We're having coffee and we're talking uh, about uh, pizza and amongst other things. Here, here's the background. Security camera footage from an mm-hmm. elevator in Surrey, B.C. appears to show a Domino's pizza delivery man doing something off-putting. The footage shows the man put a customer's pizza box on the floor. If that's not bad enough, he opens it and picks toppings off the top of the pizza and ins- and consumes them. <laughs> Domino's Pizza has confirmed to Global News the driver, a college student, has been fired. So today we're having coffee talking about cheeky employee behavior. Have you ever confessed to doing something you shouldn't have done on the job or have you ever been the target of an employee jokester? So Shannon Lee Vidal, why don't we start with you? Have you ever done something maybe you shouldn't have on the job? No, absolutely not. I'm Liar. perfect. No, no. I'm perfect, she says. <laughs> no, but I, but I have had I have been the 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 target of a joke though. Uh, several years ago, when I moved back to Winnipeg, I was at uh, my apartment and waiting for cable to get set up. So you know they give you a window, and it's like I don't know, like six hours. So I'm there waiting on the floor with no furniture because you know you can't really fully move it until you have internet, right? That's true. It's true. So I'm sitting there, sitting on the floor. <laughs> all day long and and he doesn't come and I was looking outside because it was on the first floor doesn't come doesn't show up so I, I called them and they're like and they just gave me the runaround and they explained to me how uh, and I had to call them back several times actually and then I had to call their head office and the, they, they they told me that my phone number had been put in as this is pizza related Four 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 forty four forty four. Yes, Mr. Bones Mr. Pizza. Bones. So, yeah. So they were phoning Mr. Bones trying to come and install your internet. Yeah, and I don't know why they 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 would have done that or what would have possessed them to do that to me. That's I don't know. Mean. But but I will say when I called head office, they were super friendly and uh, very accommodating and very pleasant and made up for that employee jokester. You are uh, on the wall of fame at Shaw. Somewhere in a customer service center, somewhere in Western Canada, I imagine. Jeff Braun, uh, any was, true confessions from no, you? No, I will not be confessing anything, as I've worked here for the last 19 years, and I don't know what the statute of limitations is. I will th- throw our friend uh, Philly the Kid over at Power 97 under the bus. Oh, sounds good. Because he, he and I started at the same time, and uh, a fun prank that Phil used to play on me was to go into my new scripts and pepper it with uh, F-bombs and stuff. <laughs> See if you could get me to swear on the air. That so, wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> That's a mandatory so, yeah, thing. Like, what the? <laughs> I wouldn't say it, thankfully, but yeah. <laughs> of course, if you've seen Anchorman, Ron Burgundy, yeah. Red, whatever he, was in front he of was, him. You tried to Burgundy me. There you go. What about behind the glass, Jerry? Jerry, you've done so many jobs. I yeah. can't imagine that you've been an A1 employee at all of them. Well, I, I don't know if I've ever done anything horrible or anything like that, but I do remember I was working for the Board of Education in London. I worked in the Educational Resource Services uh, Department, which was the department where when a teacher wants a video, they they contact ERS and they say, hey, send this video out to me. I want to show it to the kids. And we had all kinds of educational, boring videos, but we also had some Hollywood movies in there. And one time, everyone in, in the building was watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I needed to get it out into the mailbag to go to a school. And and everyone's there, no, you're not, we're watching this movie. So I had to send a note saying that it was already taken out by another teacher. So you lied. 
So I you had, could finish watching the movie. Absolutely. And I think there was only like 30 minutes left in the movie. And oh. and they were like, no, we're, we're, we're watching this movie. You're going to have to do something else, Jerry. Figure it out. <laughs> That's your uh, government dollars at work, folks. Uh, don't move to Ontario as long as Jerry's working in the system. Now in the in the tease, Brett, uh-huh. you mentioned the idea of finding a coffee lid or similar in a in a burger, or I said too much? Uh, yeah, when I went, uh, this is, I guess we're going back almost 20 years now, maybe longer, went to visit a buddy of mine who worked at McDonald's at Walmart on Regent, and he, he I remember, the, I still see the, the horror, horrified look in his face. Because a customer returned and had to hand back a burger, which was meant for me. He had created a cheeseburger and he stuffed a coffee lid into the burger. <laughs> One but it problem. went out to a different customer. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh. Uh, so he ended up remaking her order, and then he remade my order and gave me a couple of quadruple cheeseburgers uh, for my trouble. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, he I don't think he got in any trouble, though, because his manager was in on the gag. So, <laughs> Kelly Moore, did, Do you remember Jamie McCowan? Oh, yes. Well, you Absolutely. know what he's famous for in these parts, right? Oh, yes. Take it out, Ducky. That's yeah. right. Breaking his ribs. The 84-85 playoffs yeah. against Calgary. The Jets uh, beat the Flames in the best of five, I guess it was yes, then. Yes, it was, yeah. And then uh, the Jets went down to the Oilers 4 nothing as they yeah. usually did. The Jets finished fourth overall that year. We're having an absolutely uh, fantastic season. I think they only lost one of their last 14 games, something similar. Working in Chi-Chi's on Chinook Mall in Calgary in 1991. And guess who should sit in my what section? What did you do to Jamie One Jamie McCowan. Uh, now, uh, the, the, the head chef, the headline cook, was from Winnipeg. And all I did was walk into the kitchen and say, Table 105 is Jamie McCowan. And that's all I said. I have no knowledge of any skullduggery happening. But uh, I did plant a seed. And, and I like to leave the story there, if I may. Yeah, did Jamie McCowan plan his next game? <clears throat> no comment. No ahead. comment. <laughs> no comment. Um, we're getting a couple of text messages here at 204 780 Eve says he once phoned a vacuum repair shop and could swear over the lunch hour that the people at the desk were... Uh, shall I say, engaged in adult fun. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that story. So what's Eve? wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, no, that's that's just making good use of your time. So give us your feedback at 204-780-6868. You can email gmac at cjob.com, brett at cjob.com as well. Thank you very much to Shanalee Vidal, Kelly Moore, Behind the Glass Jerry, and Jeff Broad. You might have to scrape off your windows this morning if you uh, parked your car early yesterday afternoon and haven't touched it since then. I actually went out and did it yesterday evening so I wouldn't have to deal with it this morning and wake up my neighbors at 4 in the morning (laughs) scraping uh, my car. They had a massive dump of snow down in uh, Minnesota yesterday in the Twin Cities, freezing rain and snow. And I was listening to Twin Cities radio uh, online this morning on my way in, and someone was talking about how they had no scraper or brush in their in their car, but they had a stuffed animal and they used a stuffed animal, one of their kids' stuffed animals to clean off their windshield <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> and now they have to go back to Toys R Us to replace the oh, stuffed no. animal <laughs> that they used. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I've seen credit cards uh, is probably the biggest thing you used in a pinch. I've never ever thought of a stuffy. That might work, actually. Yeah, why not? Uh, later on this morning, Jan Arden, uh, 
renowned Canadian musical artist will join us. She'll tell, uh, come and talk to us about a serious issue. Uh, type 2 diabetes claimed uh, the life of one of her grandparents, and she's warning about the secondary issues from type 2 diabetes, in particular cardiac issues. So we'll visit with Jan Arden just after 9 o'clock this morning. As you've been hearing in Global News, changes are coming for adult Manitobans who suffer from sleep apnea. Starting in April, adults getting treatment will be expected to pay for equipment that delivers steady air pressure during sleep. About 16,000 Manitobans currently receive the therapy, with 2,800 new patients being prescribed the treatment each year. The Winnipeg Regional Health Authority's Chief Health Operations Officer is Krista Williams. She spoke with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham yesterday afternoon on the news on 680 CJOB to talk about CPAP therapy. CPAP therapy is a common treatment, so it's um, continuous positive airway pressure therapy. It's a common treatment for something called obstructive sleep apnea, um, and they use a machine and a hose um, to deliver constant um, and steady air pressure. Um, Sleep apnea is is something that um, is a common sleep disorder where individuals have one or more pauses in breathing um, while they're sleeping at night, and when they use the CPAP machine, um, they get continuous uh, steady air pressure to prevent that from happening. So right now when a patient is diagnosed as having sleep apnea and require a CPAP machine, is that provided? Do they need private insurance? How does that work? So the current process is an individual that goes to our sleep disorder center that is tested, diagnosed, and determined that CPAP is appropriate treatment for their condition would be would receive a prescription um, for the CPAP uh, equipment, um, and then they would uh, WRHA currently provides uh, the, uh, the the funding for that equipment and supplies. So what's changing? So what's changing, effective April 23rd, adults receiving the therapy in Manitoba will be responsible for a $500 co-payment for the purchase of the new and and or replacement CPAP therapy equipment. Um, And they'll also be responsible for the ongoing cost for their supplies. That's the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority's Chief Health Operations Officer, Krista Williams, speaking to the news on 680 CJOB yesterday afternoon with Julie Buckingham and Richard Cloutier about CPAP therapy and changes for those who suffer from sleep apnea. Here is more of that conversation. How much are we talking about here? $500 deductible, I gather. What's the ongoing costs? So the, the $500 is for the uh, initial for initially for the actual equipment. The WHA will pay the remainder of the cost for the equipment. Um, and then there's ongoing supplies that uh, range on average, the provincial average for the supplies is around $350 per year. What if you can't afford that? Well, um, many private insurance programs offer some financial support for CPAP equipment and, and supplies which may reduce that individual's co-payment. Um, and individuals currently receiving employment and income assistance may be eligible for coverage. Um, in addition to that, we've set up an appeals process. And the, we recognize there may be people who can't afford the equipment co-payment and that have exceptional circumstances for consideration. So we will um, use that appeal process, which will be posted on our, our public website. Individuals can um, review the appeal process submit the necessary information for consideration to us. Are we much different from other provinces in this regard when it comes to funding CPAP? So part of the reason why we are moving forward on this is we did do a review of Canadian provinces and health regions 
Um, what we found was most provinces across Canada require individuals to pay the full cost of both CPAP therapy equipment and supplies. Um, Manitoba will, with this co-payment, Manitoba will be one of three uh, provinces, uh, Saskatchewan, along with Saskatchewan and Ontario, that were that will offer the co-payment model in Canada. So if you currently use CPAP, you're expected after uh, this April date to uh, pick up the ongoing costs? So if you're currently um, prescribed and using CPAP equipment, uh, after April 23rd, um, as long as your machine um, is not requiring replacement, you would be responsible for paying the ongoing supplies for uh, the machine. Understood. How much is this going to save the authority? We're estimating that approximately uh, $4.9 million will be saved per year. That is Krista Williams with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. She is the Chief Health Operations Officer for the WRHA. With Julie Buckingham and Richard Cloutier, and just very quickly, a friend of mine uh, from the annual Boys Golf Tournament, he, because I've had to share cabins with him, I before he used this, this machine, mm-hmm. he sounded like when he snored, like a rusty chainsaw cutting through a tin shed. It was horrible, and it was because of what he suffers through. Now he says he sounds like Darth Vader, but at least it's more of a steady droning sound, but it's changed his life. So I'm curious to know what's going to happen with him now that this is going on. You bring a smile to my face on a quarterly hour basis behind the glass, Jerry. Always picking the best music. You'll find out why in just a moment. Mackling McGarry in the morning. It is 7.36 on a Wednesday. And I know that Cheryl Lashek, does that name ring a bell to you? She was kind of a Twitter. She had a Twitter following. There was a hashtag uh, attached to Cheryl's name. She is the signatory of a piece of paper that I think a lot of people take for granted in a piece of transportation that you don't take every day. Some people do. Not everybody does. Uh, Amber McGookin is here from Global News, and uh, she's with Global News Television. And if you go to globalnews.ca, you can see her story we're going to share with you right now. Amber, that piece of paper I'm talking about, it's an elevator permit. Is it worth the paper it's written on? I guess so. I mean, there's some fun facts on there, just how many people can squeeze into that little little elevator and how much weight it can hold. But it also shows the last time that that elevator had been inspected by the province, so a thorough provincial inspection. So that's kind of what that signifies. So even on that permit, you can see the, uh, the ex- expiration date, which is kind of what we're talking about today. Oh, yes. I see on the example that you have here, maximum pack passengers, 15, maximum capacity, 3,000 pounds, I'm guessing that is, uh, elevator type passenger, the manufacturer, and then there's a date, 2016-02-29. That seems to be coming up pretty quick, February 29th. Do these things expire? How quickly do they expire? How long are they good for? Well, we aren't positive. We're still trying to find out how long these are good for, but they're good for, from what we understand, two years. So, But we've been finding that a lot of them are expired. We asked the province exactly how many are expired. They said there's about 4,800 elevators in the province. Okay. And right now there's a pretty big backlog. They have 514 that are expired. So overdue for an inspection. That's over 10%. It's around 10%, yeah. So... What prompted you to look into this in the first place? Well, I am someone who, I guess, I'm just more of a nerd, and I just look at these kind of things. Um, so we, 
<laughs> I, that's probably what it is. But when when I go in an elevator, I'm always curious how how heavy we can, how many people can fit in, and all those kind of things. So I just got to looking at them, and I kind of noticed a few of them. As soon as it hit 2018, I, you could immediately tell when right. they were expired. You know, I, I didn't really do the math before then, but when you start when you're in 2018, you see, okay, this one expired in 2017. You can immediately figure out oh, this one's expired, this one's expired. And I started to notice a lot. And that's what surprised me, just how many places I was seeing them. And uh, we've been hearing from the province that just because the permit says that it's expired doesn't mean that it is expired. They might not have got their paperwork yet. But there's still so many around the city that we found. I can go over some of the places where we, we found yeah, some I'd of them. I'd be interested to know where you saw some expired permits. Right, so some places where a lot of people do gather and it's, public places. So we found uh, an expired permit at the Forks and that one expired October 31st. The RBC Convention Center, those permits expired May 31st. Portage Place, another busy place, October 31st. And then there's some uh, ones that have been expired even longer. So uh, Red River College, the Notre Dame campus, that's where the one you were talking about earlier with all those stats. That one expired February 29th, 2016. And then there's another one, a Lakeview Tower downtown on Carlton Street. That one expired December 31st, 2016. We found a few others, others, but we wanted to give those places notice before we started talking about their... So that one at Red River College, I just assumed that it said 2018, Mm -hmm. and so that it would be expiring at the end of February, but of course I'm not thinking clearly, and there's no 29th of uh, February, uh, 26, (laughs) so it's almost two years expired. that's the one at Red River College, their Notre Dame campus. Yeah, so that's part of the problem. We just started looking at how many places they, that are expired, and we did get a little bit of a, a statement from the province. I can read through what they were saying to us here. Hang on. So it says that the building owners are required to ensure their equipment is properly maintained and working safely. Elevator service companies are contracted to assist them and to manage the risk. Just because a certificate expires does not mean the elevator is unsafe. Hmm. So who is Avram Sharak? So he is from the Professional Property Matters, uh, Managers Association, and uh, he I asked him about this because they manage a lot of apartment buildings and stuff like that, which do have a lot of elevators, of course. And he was kind of giving me some backstory on this. He said they've noticed this has been a problem for at least a decade. The problem is if they're six months to a year behind, and they often are, in inspections, and there isn't a contract that a person has... Something could very well go wrong in a year that just doesn't get caught, and that can be very problematic, to to put it politely. So as he was saying about the contract there, um, so he was saying some very... Uh, very great property managers, as he's kind of putting it, do have a company that comes in monthly to do the routine inspections of those elevators on their own. They're say, mm-hmm. He's saying it's not mandated, but some places just want to make sure that they don't have any big surprises and right. big repairs. So he said, when he was talking about the, the companies that have the contracts, he's saying, you know, if you're you know, a great property manager, you're going to have someone coming in and checking. So that's kind of what he's referring to. But he's, but the problem he brings up is what if you don't have one of those companies coming in and you're not bringing, because it's an expensive service. And so if you're going to have someone coming in, you know, once a month to check your one elevator in your apartment building, that becomes quite costly. So he was kind of getting to the point of, you know, what if you're not getting these checked all the time? What could that mean? If you're, if it's overdue for an inspection, something could be missed in that time period from the last inspection from the province. Amber McGookin is our guest. She is a global news reporter here in Winnipeg. Now, while you were looking into this story, you spoke with some Winnipeggers as well on the subject. What they have to say? 
Yeah, well, we we went and to went to some of these places where they do have expired permits and talked to people just getting out of the elevator and to hear what they had to say. They most of them hadn't noticed it, of course, but when they when they did notice it, they were pretty surprised. We have a system, it seems, that cares uh, about making money and about saving money. It doesn't really do anything unless. I'd gone in there and broken my leg, then they might have done something about it. Well, yeah, they have a reason for an inspection, and that's to make sure the safety is being complied with. And if they're not doing the actual inspections, then safety is not being complied with. So how long can an, like, if an elevator has an expired certificate, in theory, should it then not be out of commission? Like, what's the point of having these inspections if they're not going to be followed? Right. And that's a great question. It's something that we didn't get answers to from the province yet, but we can, we'll definitely follow up on those kind of things. The, I guess it kind of goes back to what they were saying earlier about the province kind of reacted and said that just because the certificate expires doesn't mean it's unsafe. So that's kind of where their stance is on that. Well, and there are, of course, property owners who are proactive and do inspect these things. And you brought that to our attention. But I can't help but think about that building downtown, that 12-story condo on Edmonton back last April. Both of their elevators were out of service for two weeks. And I'd be fascinated to know when did their permits expire? Was there a lack of inspection of those elevators? And should we not be learning from a situation like that where you had dozens of people living in a condominium without an elevator, not one, but two elevators out of commission for two weeks? Uh, th- this, I think, is maybe uh, should be asking uh, more questions and the province should maybe be answering some more questions on this. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of questions. They wouldn't uh, actually give us a list of all those places. So there's 514 expired permits, which means they're backlogged of, you know, checking these elevators, 514 in the province. They wouldn't give us that list of where those places are. We did ask multiple times for that list to find out, you know, where can people be aware of this? But we didn't get that answer. The headline at globalnews.ca slash Winnipeg. Hundreds of Manitoba elevators in backlog for safety inspection. A story courtesy of Global News reporter Amber Magookin. Thank you for the visit, Amber. It's nice to see you. A rare opportunity to say hello to our TV friends. (laughs) Thanks, Grace. Round six of the NAFTA negotiations started yesterday in Montreal. They go through Sunday. Hopefully we will find out whether a new NAFTA agreement is even possible. And if so, what could it look like? To learn more, Colin Robertson joins us live from Montreal. He's vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former Canadian diplomat. Good morning, Mr. Robertson. Good morning. What are we expecting in Montreal as we enter day two of this meeting? Is there contention or is there an air of positivity? Well, I think the eyes are more going to be on what's taking place in Davos, where President Trump is going to give a speech on probably including trade, and Prime Minister Trudeau is also also there, and it's possible the Prime Minister and the President will meet, and certainly NAFTA would be on there, uh, on what they would discuss, and uh, the ministers, Christopher Freeland and Minister Gerhardo and Bob Lighthizer, the United States Trade Representative, are also over there. So those talks will be quite important as to the outcome of these negotiations in Montreal. Within Montreal, the negotiators are sitting down and they're plowing through the 28-some chapters, what they call tables, that will wind up as chapters, and trying to finish off much of the non-contentious issues, things like phytosanitary affairs, things like transparency, things like anti-corruption. A lot of the the meat and potatoes of of an agreement with 
with polysyllabic names, which uh, don't mean a lot to anybody except those who are deeply involved, but are really important to trade agreements. And the negotiators are making a lot of progress on those. They met in December in Washington. And there's a feeling that if you can get through the, uh, the tough stuff, which is being discussed at a different table, then an agreement would be possible. Now, Colin, uh, Canada and Mexico signing on to this, uh, in the meantime, signing this uh, new Trans-Pacific Partnership. Is this is that something they're potentially using as a negotiation ploy in this round of NAFTA talks? I'd, I'd refer to it more as an insurance policy. The mm-hmm. United States will always be our biggest market. But if the United States were not to, if we were not able to renegotiate the NAFTA and tariffs were to go up and it would be slightly more difficult for us to get into the U.S. market. We will still get into the U.S. market. We'll still trade with them, but it's not going to be as easy and consumers are going to pay more for products that come through North America. So for countries like Canada and Mexico, who really do depend on trade, we are looking to alternate markets. Europe, we recall last year we signed an agreement with the European Union and we now have to finish that off, but also take advantage of the opportunities that opens. It's going to open a lot of opportunities, for example, on meat and pork, and that matters to Manitoba. And similarly, the uh, Pacific market, the countries we're getting into, particularly the Japan, that's going to open up opportunities for Manitoba farmers, for example. You know, I've looked through uh, some of the documentation that's been made available by by you, authored by you, compiled by you, Mr. Robertson. And Donald Trump, here's the quote that stands out, the worst trade deal ever, he's been uh, quoted as saying throughout uh, the ca- his campaign for president and subsequent to his inauguration as, as president. What does Donald Trump see as so bad about this deal for America? Well, Donald Trump takes a what we call a mercantilist view. He he views trade simply as, do I sell more or do I buy more? And in his view, because he, America buys slightly more from Mexico, with Canada, it's actually a balance. He has the view that because we, America buys more goods from us, although they sell more services, and services are increasingly important parts of the of both economies, just things like in banking and insurance, the engineering services, that that therefore he's got to fix that so that America always has a surplus. And that is a uh, a view of trade that really went out of fashion about 1750 with Adam Smith. and and uh, But there are certain members of the Trump cabinet, including his trade representative and his Secretary of Commerce, who share that. There are others in his cabinet who take a different view. And most of the American business community, in fact, almost all the business community in the United States, the Chambers of Commerce, the uh, big auto manufacturers and parts companies say, no, that's the wrong way to look at trade. Well, one of the things I have a big problem with is this dispute resolution mechanism. You know, the United States will will impose these tariffs unilaterally. And just like an insurance policy, we think we're insured, but really all it does is give us the right to insure our insurer or to sue our insurer for what they promised they would do for us. And a lot of times these things get held up in the courts. What is the dispute resolution mechanism that America is touting in this next round of negotiations? America wants to have American courts decide disputes that involve Canada and Mexico. And we say, and this is why we negotiated the original Canada-U.S. free trade agreement and then carried that provision into the North American free trade agreement. We say, no, we don't trust them. These courts are are biased, whether you like it or not, towards the United States. And so we set up panels that have equal representation of Canadians and Americans. For example, if it's a Canada-U.S. dispute with somebody we agree to be as the principal, and then they look at the methodology by which 
the United States arrived at a decision to take punitive action against, for example, Bombardier jets or newsprint or softwood lumber. And we have found that these panels usually rule that the American, the way they've interpreted their own law, is, is not fair. We also rely on the World Trade Organization. So and, and the, 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 these provisions, particularly the World Trade Organization, were set up by the United States to provide this kind of uh, independent arbitration. It's like going to a judge and getting a fair hearing because we don't trust the U.S. system. So for us, that's really important. It's also very important for Mexico. Colin Robertson, Canadian and Global Affairs Institute Vice President and Fellow and former Canadian diplomat, joining us this morning to talk NAFTA. Mr. Robertson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. One, two, three. Three things with Shanalee Vidal. Today, it's three things to put on your to-do list. Hi, Shanalee. Hi, Brett. Hi, Okay, hold Brett. on. You're putting more stuff on my to-do list? I, I have enough things to do, Shanalee. It, it's an ever-growing list, and I think a few people might be adding something to their list with the, what uh, what Brett just said with that brewery tour. That sounds interesting. Well, in St. Louis yeah. yet. Uh, what, 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 what is this you're going to put on my list well, now? Well, a couple. So the first one, the, the first thing to put on your to-do list, the first one that I'm starting with is kind of bitter sweet. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, award-winning and best-selling science fiction writer, she's passed away at the age of 88, and she was best known for writing these Earthsea books. I don't know if you've heard of them, Wizard of Earthsea. Uh, They've sold in the millions of of copies in 16 different languages, and she was known for exploring feminist themes in her work. Uh, She gained a lot of fame in 1969 with this book called The Left Hand of Darkness, which involves a radical investigation of gender roles. Now, I'm familiar with the the Wizard of Earthsea books, but I'm not, I haven't read The Left Hand of Darkness. I have it. Okay. So now that is going on my to-do list. Is it like moving up in the rotation? It's moving up. It's moving up to like this year. And so, by the way, her feminist-themed 1983 left-handed commencement address at Mills College was ranked one of the top 100 speeches of the 20th century by researchers at the University of Wisconsin and Texas A&M University. And there's no audio of her saying it, but a lot of people have actually Actually, uh, recorded themselves speaking speaking her words. Okay. So here's just a sample of of some of that speech. It's pretty compelling, and I encourage you to go online and seek out the whole speech. Because you are human beings, you are going to meet failure. You are going to meet disappointment, injustice, betrayal, and irreparable loss. You will find you're weak where you thought yourself strong. You'll work for possessions and then find they possess you. You'll find yourself, as I know you already have, in dark places alone and afraid. What I hope for you, for all my sisters and daughters, brothers and sons, is that you will be able to live there in the dark place. Wow. Very, very, very profound. Profound and powerful uh, in what I... Uh, as far as the possessions go, I, I can relate to that uh, because of uh, my golf clubs. They very much possess yeah, me. So Exactly. <laughs> On so many levels, <laughs> Brett McGarry. <laughs> so many we levels could, we there. We have the makings of a, a horror film right here. <laughs> <laughs> the Assiniboine Park Zoo is back open. They've it's been closed, open. right? Exactly. And so this is number number two on my to-do list. They, they had some routine maintenance happening last week. And so something to look forward to if you've never gone there or if you've been there plenty of times, there's uh, something for you to see. It's a pair of new polar bear cubs nice. making their first ever appearance in the Leatherdale International Polar Bear Conservation Center this Friday starting at 11 a.m. The orphan cubs, one male, one female, not related by the way, 
they need names. And so the zoo is asking for visitors to help. Okay. So uh, from now until Thursday at 4 p.m., you can just log on to the Assiniboine Park Zoo's website to vote for your choice of name for these cubs. And the, oh, do we get to write in the names or, or do they give us some options? Well, they did give us an option and the names options were selected by the zoo's team of polar bear zookeepers for their relevance to the Arctic geography. So for the female cub, we can pick from willow or tundra. I'm going with tundra. And for the male options, you can pick from Arctic or Baffin. I'm going to pick Baffin. So I can't go. I, I kind of like Greg's idea better, being able to go in and write I their do, own. I, I want to write like in candidate idea, name. But, you know, Not that they haven't really tried here, yeah. but then I'd we'd walk have in, we'd have Poly Bear Bear. Or something I'd walk like in that. and write down either Neo and Morpheus or maybe Gimli and Legolas. Not to be a nerd, I, I'm huge sure you, nerd. I'm I like sure the idea would. of uh, Gimli, though. Yeah, yeah, that's I think, right. I think that is a neat idea. Mm-hmm. We might have to uh, start a petition here. <laughs> For the next Maybe, uh, round of polar bear I, cubs. I, I think so. Okay. Ready for number three. Yeah, okay. Number three on, on the to-do list. Now, this one, it the more so if you're planning a trip to Louisiana in the next little oh, while. Oh, of course. Of course. I go right? every year. Who isn't going there? So this is going to be the hot or perhaps spicy ticket. Uh, love, hate, and hot sauce are key themes in a 19th century <laughs> comic <laughs> opera being produced this week as part of New Orleans' 300th anniversary called Tabasco, a burlesque opera, and it's been stuck in an attic for more than a century. Wind conductor Paul Moffray found a program for its 1894 tour in archives for the New Orleans Opera Company and its predecessors. That's kind of neat. Yeah, and so the opera has a super wacky plot involves uh, traitors, two harem girls named Fatimina Hasbina, a saltina, a, a, or rather a sultan, not a raisin. <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's a saltina. <laughs> or, or a cracker yeah. that's not a saltine. A, a sultan obsessed with spicy food, uh, and then the drunk guy who impersonates a fresh uh, French chef. And of course, a bottle of Tabasco saves the day and people fall in love and Sounds reasonable mischief to happens. Me. And of course, Louisiana is the home of Tabasco sauce. The factory is on its own island, Avery Island. Many of the workers actually have homes there and you have to pay a dollar to actually get onto the island. Well, well. And so even if you, you're not going in the next little while, if you are going to Louisiana in general ever, I do encourage you to check out the Tabasco factory. It is a must-do on your to-do list, not just for the smell of all the pepper plants or the little tiny bottles of Tabasco <laughs> that they give you at the end of the tour. I still have mine. I haven't opened them. Wow. <laughs> I, I encourage you, to, or for the giant salt mine they have there, I encourage you to go because you can also see the Tabasco's Gator Sanctuary. Oh, that sounds great. And the free-running ro- free ro- Gator. Oh, it's terrific. Free running. Yes, yeah, so you have to be careful not to get out of your car because they run fast. And they're just there, nature, walking around. I thought you were trying to encourage us to go to this place. No, it's great. It's, it's just don't get out of your car. All right. That sounds wild. Because they can when run. When were you there? Uh, maybe five years ago. Like, yeah. No, well, that's incredible. We learn more about we, you we each drove, and every day, don't we? We drove down there. Eve has a suggestion for the polar bear, Shanalee. Okay. He has texted us. Barry McBearface. Yeah, this was part of the concern. That's it. You see? Eve, you're not part of the solution. You are part of the problem, my friend. No, Jerry. No, it's not. Psychology in the city with Dr. Raymond Abdul Rahman. There you go. How'd I do? Did I do okay, Raymond? Not bad. Dr. Abdurrahman is a psychologist with Clinic Psychology Manitoba, and this month we're going to be discussing the architecture of thought for positive thinking. 
I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley Stuart Smalley is a caring nurturer, a member of several 12-step programs, but not a licensed therapist. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> Does that work, Raymond? Does that work, that sort of idea of giving yourself a pep talk? Well, I would say no, and I think most people know that at their heart, which is why that's a comedy skit on SNL. You know, people laugh at that because, well, if we try to sell ourselves BS, we won't buy it. We have to be able to sell ourselves something that we will buy. And so the reason why I think positive thinking doesn't work is because it creates this bubble without any architecture to support it. You know, if we tell ourselves just positive thoughts in an Ed Flanders kind of way, those thoughts will last for a little while, but the moment we face distress, they'll collapse. Now, in comparison, usually our negative thoughts are based on at least one negative experience. You know, and that if you think back to any negative thought that you've had at some point in time in your life, there'll be some history behind it. And that tends to carry forward. And so albeit one negative experience, it's a powerful one that can influence the way that we choose to think. And so when we're competing, you know, positive thoughts without any architecture versus a negative thought with one powerful piece of support, guess what's going to win? So how do you form then that architecture of thought for positive thinking? That's a really good question. So I would say that what we need to start to do is fact check. So, so what we can do is first deconstruct the negative thought. The negative thought we have usually has one experience, but we tend to overgeneralize it. So, you know, we'll say, you know, I had this one bad experience, therefore all of these experiences will go that way. So we got to fact check. We fact check our Facebook posts, but we don't fact check our negative thoughts. And we don't fact check our positive thoughts either, actually. And that's, that's ultimately, the, I think, the base of all of this stuff. You know, what is the evidence behind some of this stuff? And I believe more in what I think is what, what I call realistic thinking. You know, that realistic thinking has this concept that, you know, sometimes, I don't know if I can swear on the air, but yeah, um, SHIT happens sometimes, but, you know, uh, but the thing is we find ways to cope that even in that negative situation, that doesn't apply to all of those situations. If we actually look at what our experiences were like, that there's there are a lot more variation in that. And we tend to focus on the negative. So let's say, for example, we're setting an example for a New Year's resolution. And our negative thought might say, you know, you'll never be able to do this. You've always failed at this. And it's always and never. And the truth is that's not the case. If we fact check, we're like, you know what? Actually, I tried this stuff before and that worked. I've tried it these few times. And so now that positive thought has a little bit of architecture behind it. So that's step number one. Step number two is to actually create a bit of a plan. So if you have a solution-focused thought, well, that solution, you know, that process of thinking of a solution, even if there's no perfect answer, that process of looking for that gives us a sense of control. And control, in contrast to the negative thoughts, gives us hope. And hope will breed more positivity than just a blanket statement that we don't believe. 
You know, uh, when I was in sales, I used to always author my CV as a roadmap to success. Mm. Not just my history of what I'd done, but this is going to, this is how I'm going to outline for you either here or in an interview, how we're going to get somewhere. Mm. And I always think about when uh, our family drove to Disneyland back in 1991, two vehicles from Winnipeg to Anaheim way before the internet, but we did have the trip tech, right? From CAA, CAA. You have to have a map. If you're, if you're, you know, going on a long road trip, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have an idea of how often you need to stop for gas, Absolutely. how much we're going to spend on gas, Mm -hmm. how many hotels, like we're going to be gone for two weeks. Is this going to cost a half a million dollars or 5,000, you know, well, we can't afford to do that. Mm -hmm. It costs too much. Well, hold on Mm -hmm. before we dismiss this idea of going on this great family vacation, let's get an idea of how much it might cost. Mm -hmm. And you might be surprised that it's not nearly as much as you think. Mm-hmm. And then the logistics might not be as onerous as you think. Is this what we're talking about here in terms of deconstructing your initial thought and then maybe constructing a, a valid um, answer or a valid response to what sounded like an outlandish proposal 19 minutes ago? Absolutely. And so I think people can do anything they want as long as we have set a realistic goal, as long as that goal is broken down into smaller and manageable steps then our thinking shifts and our thinking and that kind of thinking will support motivation and energy as opposed to like just, you know, a periodic kind of good old shot in the arm that'll die in a, in a short amount of time. Think about that trip, right? Like if we just say, we're going to go to Florida and we're going to have an awesome time. We're just going to go do it. We're going to do it now. You know, we'll probably end up stranded, you know, somewhere right. in Grand Forks, you know, right. around like gas if we've not budgeted for those things. If you're not budgeting your time properly mm-hmm. and uh, is it hurricane season or not in mm-hmm. Florida? Mm-hmm. What are the chances of us losing any of our three days at Walt Disney World or, you know, th- those sorts of things? What could we meet along the way? Yes. You're inevitably going to meet something along the way, mm-hmm. flat tire, uh, uh, repair on your vehicle. Mm-hmm. How are you equipped to deal with that deviation also dictates whether that endeavor is going to be successful. Absolutely. So, so we think about this architecture. How do we want to support this thought? Because it's that thought that actually carries out the action. It's that our thoughts are the switch that determine what choices we choose to make. And, have an, and they have a huge emotional consequences. So we need to pay a lot of attention to that switch. Right? Why is it that we're making these choices? Can we fact check them? Once we're able to do that, then we're able to have sustainable, positive thought, realistic thought. Just one more thing on that analogy before we take the break. Just because you get a flat tire in Omaha, Nebraska on the way to Los Angeles, is that the end of the trip? Not necessarily. Not if you plan around how to deal with that. Well, most of us, when we're trying to change our workout routine or diet or whatever, you have one roadblock. And for a lot of us, it's like, well, I'm done. That's it. You can't do that. We can't. We should talk about how to deal with that after the break. Dr. Raymond Abdul Rahman is a psychologist with Clinic Psychology Manitoba. A couple of websites to point out here clinicpsychology.com as well as winlove.ca. That's W I N N love.ca. Uh, thank you, Jerry. How did you know I needed that? One of our favorite guests is in studio with us, Dr. Raymond Abdul Rahman. He is uh, here for Psychology in the City, and today we're talking about. The architecture of thought for positive thinking. And before the break, I 
you know, we were, we were hammering on, I was hammering on an analogy. I can't give it up sometimes, Raymond, so I, I apologize for that. But the whole idea of taking a trip as an example, a family trip to California, and you go to CAA back in the day and you get the trip tick and you you put your trip into bite-sized pieces and, and plausible goals, settable and achievable goals. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, because you plan to get to Oogalala, Nebraska in your first day of driving. Uh, <laughs> And you, get a, and you get a flat tire in Omaha, which may or may not have happened, that doesn't mean your trip is over. But mm-hmm. we treat a lot of things in our life when that first obstacle that seems like a deal breaker comes up. We go, well, so much for that change. That's what happens when that bubble pops. That's when that architecture kind of falls apart <clears throat> because sometimes we don't. And that architecture needs to be continuously kind of right. examined and rebuilt. So when we have an emotional reaction, when things fall apart, when we go off the rails, that feeling is usually tied to a belief. There's a thought there. Um, let's say, for example, you know, with this trip, you know, it might be, you know, we'll never get there. We're stuck. I've ruined the family vacation um, with New Year's resolutions, you know, like I will never achieve this. This never works. I'm a failure. Those are all, those are all the beliefs or the thoughts that are tied to that emotional reaction. And when we fact check those thoughts, what we find is actually they're false. They're either unrealistic or not solution-focused. And if we answer each two questions for any of those thoughts, is this thought realistic? Like what is the evidence behind this? And if there isn't any evidence, then we need to find what is the realistic thought because that will help restructure where we're supposed to go. But if it is realistic, because at times you do get a flat tire, then what do I do? Well, let's find a close shop, close by. Let's get it fixed. Let's find what's nice to do in the area. And let's work on that. So our trip, you know, is not broken. And then we carry on. So we have a solution-focused thought. And the truth is mistakes, you know, mistakes in life is kind of like painting. There are times where we put things on a canvas that we didn't expect. And we can do many things with it. We can either paint over it. But sometimes those things that show up on the canvas are not things that they're actually quite beautiful if we just allow us times to look at that. There's this artist, I can't remember the name, who was at a shift in times of the periods of painting. And he was a realist and he used to paint these ships with these gray, you know, the gray ships with the gray seas, very dull and whatnot. And then there was this modernist style that came in and everybody started to switch their attention from his paintings to their to this modern painting. And out of frustration in the gallery, he went up to one of his paintings, took his thumb, put it in some red paint and just smeared his thumb right in the middle of this painting of this gray sea with this gray ship. And then all of a sudden, everybody started to shift the attention back to his painting. And there was this red thumbprint. And everybody was like, what is that thumb? What is that? Is that a buoy? Is that a boat? What is that? And so something he did out of frustration that would have that was meant to destroy his painting actually brought all the attention back to it. And we have to think about it that way. If we become solution-focused, if we change our perspective on things, we can pull ourselves back onto our plan. And that builds the architecture of our thought. What happens, in, and I'll, I'll actually use myself and Greg as examples because, uh, you know, we try to be stay positive, and, uh, but we're both emotional guys and we tend to react emotionally, especially when we make mistakes. Mm. Um, we're super hard on ourselves and we'll carry it with us for, for hours, sometimes days, and sometimes over like point, like stu- stupid little mistakes that mean nothing. But 
you know, we can't seem to drop it. And how, so what happens when you're, you're chugging along, everything's fine, and then you make a mistake and you can't shake it. You can't let go of that negativity. How do you get well, back on the rails? Well, there's three components to our experiences. There's our feelings, there's our thoughts, and then there's our actions. And in that experience, we tend to focus more on our feelings. Um, but there's usually a belief behind that. And what I encourage people to do is start to write out the thoughts that are associated with that and get it out of your head. Right? I mean, trying to catch a thought in your head is really hard because it's metaphysical. Make it make it tangible. Put it on pen and paper so it's black and white. Write down what that belief is associated with that thought. And you might be surprised. You're like, I think that. And you might realize right away that that is not a realistic thought. Challenge it. You know, Play lawyer with that thought. Check it with other people. Hey, do you think this is true? Does this make sense to you? You'll be able to figure it out yourself. And if you can't, other people around you will. Like, that does not make any sense. What evidence do I have? And then challenge the thought and write out the alternative, the solution-focused thought or the realistic thought of that. The more you start to do that, the more you start to kind of walk a new path in your mind, that it creates this new pathway. And anytime we start to create a new pathway, it's, it's hard, right? If you see a pathway in a field and you want to walk through a new one, the worn one is the one you want to go to because it's familiar. And the same mm. thing is true for our negative thoughts, right? When we are used to thinking a certain way, that becomes our way of thinking. But we have to start to become mindful about the way that we think and we start to walk a new path. And that initial process is hard. You know, we got to kick animals out of the way, move rocks and keep walking it. But eventually that path gets worn and the old one grows over. Uh, you know, you're telling the story and I'm reminded of the uh, of the dean of a university in northern North Carolina. I think it's in Air, North Carolina. That's where they build a lot of furniture. It doesn't really matter. But he, the dean took over this school and he's a business-focused guy. And... Uh, and he, he, he observed the fact that there were all these uh, worn areas of grass in the courtyard. And um, he called in the, in the main custodian and the groundskeeper and said, uh, I want to talk to you about those paths. And they're like, yeah, you know what? They're really frustrating. What, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to put up some new ropes so people don't go on the grass? He says, no, wherever there's a worn path, I want you to dig it up and put a sidewalk. Because that's where the students want to go. That's their natural path from building to building. Let's facilitate that. Mm. And we're not very good at doing that. We, 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 we'd like to put up fences to our own success. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are our own worst enemies at times. But, but there's ways to address that. And it just takes a bit more mindfulness about the thought aspect you know, of uh, the way that we think. But, but most importantly, if we act on that new thought, that cements that architecture. You can, you can learn all the theory that you want. It's not going to work well until you put it into practice. So you have that solution-focused thought, act on that solution-focused thought. When you act on that solution-focused thought, which is different than what you might do otherwise, you'd act on the negative thing. Well, that's going to cement it. That turns that imaginary structure into a real one. Dr. Raymond Abdul-Rahman is... With Clinic Psychology Manitoba, it's our segment called Psychology in the City. You can go to a couple of websites of his. There's clinicpsychology.com as well as winlove.ca, which is short for Winnipeg Love. All sorts of positivity on that particular website. Raymond, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for Thanks joining for us. Thanks for having me. Mackling McGarry in the morning. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you. It's long been known diabetes can lead to health problems, including blindness foot ulcers and amputations, but new research shows most Canadians don't know about the link between type 2 diabetes and 
heart disease. Canadian singer, songwriter, and author Jan Arden knows all too well about these risk factors. She joins us now from Toronto. Good morning, Jan Arden. Thank you for taking some time with us. Hi, how are you? Well, we're doing very well here in Winnipeg, and we're, we're happy that we we got to speak to you this morning because this is a story I think that maybe is is under understood. Is that uh, an awkward way of saying something eloquently? Well, I think so. I mean, I I kind of feel like the harbinger of doom these days. Just I've talked so much about my mom, you know, going through Alzheimer's this last decade, and but. You know, further that, I, I was dealing with both my parents for quite a number of years. My dad having diabetes, and um, he died of heart disease. And his mother had diabetes and died of heart disease. And here I am looking at my life a few years ago saying, I want to make some changes. Um, my dad would never help himself. He just figured checking his blood sugar was all he ever needed to do. And the man... You know, he should still be here. Kind of makes me mad. He should be here looking after my mother. But, you know, it's it. Uh, this stuff is really avoidable. It's, it is so much to do with lifestyle, you guys. And that's kind of what I've learned the hard way. Well, and I think we're learning more and more that uh, reducing the risk of so many diseases involves a change in lifestyle and can be. We're all looking for that magic pill, right? We're looking for that prescription from the doctor. Well, the prescription exists. It's called exercise and eating differently for most of us. It really is. I mean, just on a personal note, like a couple of years ago, I just thought i got to start eating better. And it is about moderation. It's about, you know, those those stereotypical things are always talking about, you know, grains and fruits and vegetables and drinking lots of water and not drinking too much alcohol and not smoking. And I mean, those seem like no brainers to people, but they really still are things that you have to say, listen, you're not helping yourself by not exercising, being complacent, sitting on a couch and, and not getting moving. I mean, my blood pressure is way down. My cholesterol is down. I feel like a completely different human being and I don't want to get, I don't want to get diabetes. I don't want to have heart issues. Like I want to be around long enough to, you know, drive a bunch of people crazier than I already do. And um, it it is, it's difficult thinking about my grandmother who died at 76. I mean, 76 is young. Now, Jen Arden, most Canadians, uh, according to this uh, My Heart Matters survey, says most Canadians with type 2 diabetes feel they are knowledgeable about their disease management, but one in two have no idea their diabetes alone significantly increases the risk of heart attack, heart failure, and stroke. That's a lot of people kind of rolling the dice. Oh, my God. It. I mean, one out of two. I mean, statistically, that sounds so bananas and... It, it is so changeable and so avoidable. I, I don't know, just for me, um, making simple changes and just getting moving has been such a huge part of, it's just my life now. Like I'm not on a diet. I'm not, I'm not on, I'm, I'm not doing anything drastic. I'm just making these subtle changes. And yeah, as three months goes by, nine months go by and a year goes by, you look at yourself in the mirror and it's amazing how your body reacts to that. I mean, I was my my dad always just went on and on and on about just pricking his finger and checking his blood sugar all the time and he figured that was it. If the number was right on the machine, that's all he ever had to worry about. And the man, you know, basically died of complications from heart disease. Well, you know, and a lot he didn't, of- and he didn't need to. 
Well, and that's the thing. And and the, the numbers are staggering. Never mind these percentages we were just talking about. 3.5 million Canadians living with diabetes. Okay, that's one in 10. But here's the shocking number. Twice that many, more than twice that many, are at risk of developing it. I know. See, that was my biggest fear. Um, you know, you, you, you turn 50 and, you know, you read the statistics and you, you look at the information in front of you. And I'm like, I am headed towards getting diabetes. I mean, it's in my family for one thing, so that's one marker. But just lifestyle, you know. I didn't. I never smoked. I mean, I smoked in college, but everything else on the list you could have checked off easy. Jan Arden, we have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning and lending your voice uh, to this know, important and message. I, and one more thing, just before we go. I mean, I know people have just been inundated with so much information, and and for anybody at home that wants to follow up. MyHeartMatters.ca, MyHeartMatters.ca is, I mean, it's just got a lot of information and a lot of helpful tips and, I mean, just everything that we've talked about today. If it seems overwhelming, just go on there and check it out. All right, Jen Arden, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Kelly Keene has graced us with her presence in person. Typically, we get to talk to her on the phone, and even that's been limited because you've been hanging out with Hal for the last <laughs> five months. So, Kelly, it's always great to to see you and, and talk a little bit about money. It's uh, one of our least favorite subjects to talk about, but we like <laughs> discussing it. Does that make sense? Totally, Greg and Brett. Nice to see you. My favorite subject to talk about. So, thank you. We'll 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 make our way through it. We'll, well make we our def- way through that's it. why we defer to. You on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Kelly Keene, if you don't know somehow, is an award-winning author, personal finance educator, consumer advocate for the Financial Planning Standards Council, the website kellykeene.com.ca. Mm-hmm, .com. .com, yes, thank you. Thanks, Brett. And we are talking about fraud and mm-hmm. scams. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently, uh, just to, to sort of refresh your memory, Greg and I told you about this scam where you start getting calls in your cell from strange numbers and you, you don't know what it is. So then you, you figure, well, I'll, I'll call it back. Mm-hmm. And then you get nailed for cash. So we thought, oh, hey, let's talk to Kelly about scams. So mm-hmm. why don't we start? A lot of these scams target seniors. Yes. Mm-hmm. So do you have any advice there on that? Oh, so much. Uh, unfortunately, they do target seniors. I know anecdotally, just with my mom, I live in Edmonton, she gets very different calls than I get. Number one, seniors answer their phone. They're taught to answer their phone. My mom's 80. I don't answer my phone. Um, so that's what they're looking. They're looking for people that are going to answer their phone. Um, so we'll kind of talk about that one, Brett and Greg, but we'll talk about some some similarities with a bunch of different scams. So those okay. listening uh, can, can pick up their ears or call their parents up and say, here's what you got to do, mom. Okay. So the first thing is, if you recognize a call, um, it may not be a call that's true. So my mom has a hard time getting her head around spoofing. This is where the fraudsters that might not even be on Canadian soil can actually use your uh, screen display to be anything. They can be Revenue Canada. They can look like their hydro. They can look like your cell phone company. So already you're like, oh, that's my bank or whatever. Not necessarily so. If you answer the call, always be on guard, even if it looks like your daughter or whatever. They're they're actually working very hard to get um, seniors off their game. Case okay, so that's number one. 
Number two, they know that those that are elderly have eyesight problems, have hearing problems, maybe are on some medication. They're counting on them being a little bit groggy. A new scam that's going around as well is uh, the, it used to be the child, uh, the grandparent scam which is now turned into a ransom scam. The okay. virtual kidnapping scam. Exactly. You bet. So where it was like, okay, we've got your, you know, we've got your granddaughter or grandson or whatever. It's someone yelling on the phone. They're like, oh, is that Jimmy? And they're like, yeah, it's Jimmy. You know, and they, and they like, or whatever, like we've got them. Uh, so, and this is police officer, blah, 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 with badge 492. So we need you to go to a Western Union. That's exactly, and they have researched it. So this person's like, oh my God, it's Jimmy. And- so that's what they're doing. They don't even have information or it's the Microsoft scam. Your computer has been like whatever uh-huh. and you need to go right now. Uh, we need your credit card. Where are your bank? So it's always someone yelling or someone um, saying that something's happened. If you've answered the phone, you can hang it up. Okay, and you can just take a breath and call Jimmy yourself. Call the bank yourself. Think about it's uh, we're in January. Uh, that CRA scam, the Canada Revenue Agency scam, is going to start coming along again, mm-hmm. where people are being really mean. I mean, they're mean. They're bold. They're leaving voicemails for people saying CRA for them to doesn't call. Do this. The CRA does not do this exactly. The Canada Revenue Agency is never going to call you. They're not going to be yelling at you. You would know well in advance. Um, this is where we've talked before about having a pro on your side, like a certified financial planner. Now, if you have an elderly parent, they may not want to tell you if they've been scammed. So the takeaway here is get them hooked up with someone like their banker, a planner, uh, someone that they can call if they feel that they've been duped or something of that sort. Have the talk with them. Give them the number to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Tell them not to answer the phone, that they can hang it up. Don't answer the door. Now, with all the breaches going on, uh, we just heard with Bell. I mean, every day it's a new one. doesn't matter when I'm sitting here. There was one recent hack, probably. And then you read it, and they go, well, great news. They didn't get uh, credit cards or bank account information or anything like that. They just, just your got, phone number. Just your phone number, just your name, just your email, things of that sort, because mm-hmm. that's what they want. Right. Then when you've uh, rested a little bit and it's a couple of months, all of a sudden you get a text message saying that you've been hacked with Equifax, with Bell, with Home Depot, you name whatever company it is, and you need to click this link, you need to do this thing, whatever. Don't click it. Don't click it. Don't click attachments from your friends. Don't click links from anything that looks like a bank thing. Don't do anything that you didn't initiate. Now, this sounds scary, but... You just have to take a deep breath and just slow down. Well, yesterday I was sitting on the couch with my son and I said, uh, did you order this piano app for your iPad? Okay. He goes, what app, dad? I said something, blah, 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 piano. Yeah. No, no, because all his, his uh, iTunes account is linked to my account. No, no. It says here that you ordered a $69 app. So what did I do? I clicked on the address, and of course, it's the alphabet. Right. Right? And so, you know, you can quickly suss these things out. 
but they've included a PDF. Mm-hmm. And so here's your receipt. Mm. And so even those that are even a little bit wise on this stuff yep. will go, oh, here's the receipt, as opposed to knowing that maybe you should be checking that address of where it's coming from. You'll jump to that, oh, they've given me visual proof. Yep. You click on that, and therein lies the trouble. They want you to click on that PDF. Ex- you're so right, because they're like, your curiosity, like, well, I don't know what that is. I better check. And then what happens when you click on that is generally speaking now. So if it were a link to change a password, that will likely take you to a nefarious website, a bad website that then. But it's mirrored. Exactly. And you can't tell. And you can't tell. So you want to always go to your own. If it's the PDF that you're clicking, that could now install malware uh, in your computer, which again, you would not know. You wouldn't know that that's running behind the scenes. So now every time you go to check your bank, your online banking, your investment account, things of that sort, they're seeing all of they're that. They're living inside your computer. Yeah, and here's another takeaway for people who are using Wi-Fi, making sure that you don't use public Wi-Fi and check anything that's private, anything to do with your online banking. I stay at hotels all the time. Uh, I don't trust that Wi-Fi even. I'm always on my phone using use my your data. data. Exactly. Yeah. Shut your Wi-Fi off. Um, You just got to be more and more careful about all this stuff uh, because they're working so hard to take people's money and then getting it back is is very unlikely. Well, yeah. here's a personal example, actually, Kelly. Uh, and anytime I get emails, like I get emails all the time from, yeah. as you pointed out, Revenue Canada, or Canada Revenue Agency, PayPal, whatever. And yeah. I, I always just blanket delete that stuff because I know it's garbage. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, I was dealing with a situation with Revenue Canada and I got an email at work that looked like it was from them, and it said your your refund is such and such. Mm. And I thought that actually looks like it's in the ballpark of what I'm dealing with. Wow! So I I fo- I looked up their phone number and I called them and I said, yeah. "Did you send me this email?" And they said, "No, we never would get in touch with you that way." So just by coincidence, it actually yeah. looked it looked le- legit, and I had to check it out. Um, now what, I got confirmation from them though that mm-hmm. they said we never good for do that. you. And this is what the fraudsters are counting on. It's just a numbers game. They're hoping that you just started banking with this bank. You just signed up for PayPal, Amazon, Audible, whatever you name, eBay, and and just you happen to get that email that day. It's just a big old numbers game for them. So that's where, and it, the coincidence sometimes is uncanny. Yep. Like I just got it. I have all of these like email addresses, so I use that for this and I use this for that. But on my personal one that I give out to almost no one this morning, I got, you you know, some payment and I'm using air quotes with Bitcoin and for me to check the balance and I could actually increase this and all that. And I'm just like, wow, that's good, guys. That's good. I don't even know how you got my personal um, email that I never give out to anyone. So that one, I'm not usually so diligent with, right? I'm Thanks quicker to, to click the attachments. Like I've got my Gmail that I use for signing up for, for this, that, and the other thing. And I don't click on anything there because I know I'm getting tons of spam. So it's okay to have more than one email. It's okay to use fake birthdays. It's okay to not give your real information out, especially when you're signing up for stuff online. 
We need to protect our information more. And just remember that the fraudsters are looking for so many clever, clever ways to get a hold of us and our parents. Now, it doesn't have to be uh, in a broad sense or international espionage where people are trying to get your stuff. Why don't we take a break and and maybe we'll boil this down to a a situation that others might be dealing with. I'm dealing with it with my grandmother right now uh, and handling her money and something that I learned last week that I hope it'll be okay to to share with our listeners because I I think it's an important uh, piece of advice. We'll take a pause. Kelly Keene is here. We're talking about your money, how to make sure that it stays your money. Kelly Keene uh, remains in studio with us. We're so glad that she did that. Kelly Keene is a financial expert. She's our financial wizard, award-winning author, personal finance educator, and consumer advocate for Financial Planning Standards Council. And uh, Kelly, uh, off the air, I kind of outlined the the topic I want to bring up with you, and that's, uh, you know, you might be of a certain generation where your mom or your, or your dad or your grandparents are going to count on you to take care of their finances at a certain point. Maybe they can't do it. I'm going through this with my grandma right now. Unfortunately, we planned a little bit ahead. And so my name is already on her bank accounts. Uh, Unfortunately, in the last few weeks, her health has deteriorated to the point where she can't get out of hospital. So I'm now forced to kind of take care of things. Um, She gave me her bank card. That's a no-no. I learned that this, this this past week. Now I have my own bank card, which can also protect me down the road. Talk about some of those little idiosyncrasies yeah. in terms of helping other people with their money that might get them into trouble and might get you into trouble or keep you both out of trouble. Yeah, so her giving you her card with her pin is a big no-no. Um, and big takeaway for the listeners too, if there's neighbors wanting to help maybe with grocery deliveries or things of that sort, this sometimes is where friendly fraud can start. Not that it is with you, but like just this is like something where um, it's like, hey, why don't you just give me your bank card and your pin and then it can escalate into something else. So if you for your protection and for grandma's protection and to make sure that, um, you know, if you give your card and your and your pin to even your spouse, you are no longer protected as far as your bank is concerned, your credit card company is concerned against fraud. Wow. So if something happens, they can say, well, you weren't protecting it. So yeah, Yes, you want your own card with, so this could be a supplementary credit card if you need to make purchases. So you have a card on grandma's account with your own pin. So the, the, the bank can see that protects you from your siblings, from anything else. This is the time while your parents are, are doing well, if possible, um, have a power of attorney conversation. Because sometimes, Greg, it's more than just the bank account. Sometimes it's selling mom and dad's place or it's uh, maybe there's a rental place and nothing can be done because, sure, they put your name on the bank accounts, but um, you can't do anything else with, let's say, a real estate holding or something else coming up. Make sure that power of attorney is somewhere you know where it is, not locked up in a safety deposit box. Because how How are you going to convince the bank to open up the safety deposit box saying that your power of attorney? These are hard, hard questions to to have. Um, And then, of course, with dementia and Alzheimer's, sometimes so quickly, but yet subtly revealing itself with your parents. That is not when you want to have the conversation. That's when the siblings start. You know, there's a lot of fights and all that type of stuff. So everybody, you don't even have to have your own agenda, but you have your own ideas of what should be done. Exactly. 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 So tough, tough conversations, but have them. Uh, and if you can't do it, uh, get a pro, get someone to help you to have those conversations. Kellykeen.com is the website. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y. 
K-E-E-H-N.com. She is an award-winning author, personal finance educator, consumer advocate for Financial Planning Standards Council, and one of our favorite uh, people that we bring in here on 680 CJOB. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Shanley Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. Yeah.